Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the obvious steps we need to take to reduce gun violence in the United States, debunk some of the favored propaganda supporting unfettered gun ownership, and explore the origins of how gun culture, trademark, was invented by corporations as the frontier-era need for guns began to vanish, pushing them to convert guns from tools that were needed but not loved into items that were loved though no longer needed. Clips today are from Counterspin, All In with Chris Hayes, The Daily Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The PBS NewsHour, Letters and Politics, and Breaking the Sound Barrier with Amy Goodman with additional members-only clips from Citations Needed and Letters and Politics. Other countries have misogyny and racism, untreated mental illness, and bar fights and robberies. What they don't have are weeks like the one we saw in March of 2021, in which Americans, just reeling from the murders of eight people in Atlanta, woke up to news of 10 people killed in Boulder, Colorado. It's the guns. The difference is the guns. We asked for help thinking about that from Igor Volsky, executive director of Guns Down America and author of the book Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. I started by noting the journalistic and maybe just human tendency in the wake of a mass shooting horror like Atlanta, like Boulder, like Sandy Hook, like Buffalo, like Uvalde to seek more information, more details. What were the circumstances, the motivations? Who is this individual? Somewhere along the way, one gets the sense that the problem of gun violence is too complicated to address. Whatever measure is being suggested wouldn't have prevented the latest attack, and somehow that's not a reason that that's not enough, but a reason to abandon the whole project. I asked Igor Volsky if Getting past that hopelessness calls for new goals or maybe just clarity about what our goals are. You're absolutely right. There's really this sense oftentimes in the press that this problem is just too hard, that we already have 400 million guns in circulation and there's nothing we can do about it, that we somehow have to pay the price of a 100 people dying every day from gun violence because we have a Second Amendment. And the reality is that none of that is true, that we know exactly what needs to be done in order to save lives. And we know that because states across America have strengthened their gun laws, have invested in communities that are suffering from cyclical everyday gun violence, and have seen significant reductions in their gun suicide rates and in their gun homicide rates. So these models of democracy or these laboratories of democracy, as Republicans in particular often like to point to, really serve as an example of what we need to do on the national level in order to have a standard that fits the entire country. And secondly, We just need to look overseas at some of our allies who have dramatically reduced gun violence by doing three basic things. 
by number one, ensuring that gun manufacturers and gun dealers are actually regulated and can't produce incredibly powerful weapons for the civilian market. Those countries raise the standard of gun ownership by requiring gun owners to register their firearm, to get a license, to have a firearm in the first place. And they've also addressed the root causes of gun violence, things like employment opportunities, housing security, health care. So we have the blueprint. We just need to follow it. Well, you will hear that assault weapon bans don't help because most murders happen with handguns or background checks don't help, you know, because there's a lot of resales and, and well, it's a lot of suicides. And, but if you spell it out to the goal being fewer guns, if you make that the goal, well, then that addresses all of those things. And it sounds like what you're saying uh, has worked in other places. It has a goal of just there being fewer guns out there. Yeah, the reason why the United States has a death rate that's about 25% higher than our other peer nations is exactly what you just identified. We have way too many guns, and they are way too easy to get. And until our media and our leaders can have the courage, the political courage, to recognize that reality and to begin communicating about it to the American people, it's going to be a challenge to meet the goal of of saving lives. And I have to say, we now have a president in the White House who has done this work before, who, when he was running for the presidency, released the boldest, one of the boldest gun violence prevention programs of any presidential candidate, who promised us that his experience in Washington, D.C. gave him the skills to work with Democrats and Republicans to get big things done. And so he has a heavy responsibility to follow through on those promises, to address the nation fully about this crisis, and then to work through Congress diligently and aggressively to get tighter gun laws across the finish line. Well, let me just bring you back to media for a second. When media tend to move from incident coverage to policy coverage, then then reporting on gun control gets often into this kind of static frame where you hear from, you know, opponents and proponents of a particular measure. They both get quoted. Sometimes they get quoted in equal amounts, you know, but there's this kind of backdrop which is that in this country, any restrictions on individual gun ownership face an uphill battle because it's enshrined in the law, because the lobby is all powerful, and because this country just loves its guns. These are presented as blanket impediments to change. But how true is that? Is that really an accurate current depiction of the lay of the land? Yeah, this false balance that you're identifying is that you often see in media stories, this effort to perpetuate really what is a myth about the NRA's great power and abilities, and this notion of just regurgitating claims that the Second Amendment somehow impedes us 
from doing anything about this problem is a real hindrance, I think, to the kind of conversations we have publicly about this issue, to the kind of conversations we have with our friends and families, particularly if some of them are gun owners or more politicized gun owners. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, the kind of coverage we need on this issue, the kind of press we need on this issue, is one that reflects the science and the real history. The overwhelming science in the gun violence space tells us one simple truth. Where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths. And that's really it. That's the reality that you have to start from. So any kind of argument about if you have gun restrictions, you're disarming the good guys, or if you have gun restrictions, that means it will only harm the good guys because the bad guys will never follow it. That kind of argument that the NRA has so successfully gotten the press to parrot for decades is a real hindrance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we hopefully, hopefully have reached a point where gun violence is so ubiquitous and support for actually doing something is so widespread that we will hopefully see less of this effort to just pretend that, well, nothing at all is possible, right? And, and just a second on the, on the Second Amendment, you know, the, the history of this is, is very intriguing to me because for decades and decades and decades, really up to about 1972, it was hard to find anybody in the press or within even the, the gun community who argued that the Second Amendment is somehow an impediment to gun regulation. That argument is actually quite new, and it was developed through NRA-funded researchers and NRA-funded lawyers. They birthed this idea that the Second Amendment somehow prevents us from doing what we know we need to do. And oftentimes, the media just parrots that invented notion without actually recognizing that it is certainly not what the Founding Fathers intended, but also doesn't reflect the reality of how most courts, the Supreme Court to some degree, but also courts across the country have ruled repeatedly that the amendment allows for pretty significant regulation. Today, Wayne LaPierre, head of the National Rifle Association, hosted a number of Republican politicians, including the ex-president, at his organization's annual conference in Houston, just days after 19 elementary school children and two teachers were slaughtered by a gunman a few hundred miles away. Now, all of the speakers at today's conference acknowledged the shooting, and really, how could they not? And all of them blamed it on everything but the AR-15-style rifle that the gunman bought as soon as he was legally able to when he turned 18. This is standard. I mean, this is the, the script. We know how this goes for NRA and the politicians who it pays. 
In the aftermath of the recurring horror these weapons of war have wrought, LaPierre and his allies in the Republican Party just throw out any excuse to try to explain why guns are not the problem. It was following the Sandy Hook massacre 10 years ago, which left 20 children and six adults dead, that LaPierre provided one of the most indelible excuses of the modern age. The only way, the only way to stop a monster from killing our kids is to be personally involved and invested in a plan of absolute protection. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Ironically, that's the moral cosmology of a child, like a small kid who thinks about the world, good guys with guns and bad guys with guns. And that phrase and the sentiment behind it are now inescapable. I mean, it was obviously ridiculous back then, a ludicrous thing to say, and ludicrous now. It, it, it's simply not how a functioning society works. It's a Wild West state of nature in which conflicts are resolved only through violence and bloodshed. But it meant more guns, right? If you're Wayne LaPierre and you're solving at the board, they're sitting around, they're brainstorming like, oh, there's 20 murdered kids Guns? More guns? Maybe we just try to shoot the moon here. The notion that only a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun is still, it's an organizing policy principle of the Republican Party. It is the mythos sold by the conservative movement, movement for the last 10 years at least to justify constantly expanding access in every legislative session to guns like Texas Governor Greg Abbott has done. And the aftermath of this latest horrifying massacre, they trotted it out again because it's, it's what they do. The mythos was on full display again. Everyone praising with solemnity the good guys with guns and claiming those good guys with those guns prevented an even greater tragedy. The reality is as horrible as what happened. It could have been worse. The reason it was not worse is because law enforcement officials did what they do. They showed amazing courage by running toward gunfire for the singular purpose of trying to save lives. But as he was approaching, as the governor mentioned earlier, there was a brave, uh, consolidated independent school district resource officer that approached him, engaged him, and at that time, there was not, gunfire was not exchanged, but the subject was able to make it into the, into the school. During a briefing from law enforcement, two of the Uvalde police officers who responded to the shooting shared their harrowing experience with us. And in the face of such unthinkable evil, their courage was unwavering. I'm just going to read what Greg Abbott said again, just because just I wanted to let it sink in. Hold on one second. Uh, the reason it was not worse is because law enforcement officials did what they do. They showed amazing courage by running toward gunfire for the singular purpose of trying to save lives. That is a comforting story if you're mourning the horror of what's happened. But here's the thing. That's not just not true. It's we think now the opposite of the truth. 
The argument that heroic law enforcement officers, the proverbial good guy with guns, showed unwavering courage and prevented the massacre from being even worse. That that's not at all how it looks. As we learn the facts, after three days of misdirection, false start, shifting stories, we have arrived at what appears to be the horrible almost unspeakable, almost not believable truth of what actually happened in that classroom in Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Just listen to the Texas Director of Public Safety today admitting to the total and complete failure by police to stop the massacre. There was a discussion early on that an ISD, consolidated ISD for Uvalde, had officer was a resource officer and had confronted the subject. That did not happen. The bottom line is that officer was not on scene, not on campus, but had heard the 911 call with a man with a gun, drove immediately to the area, sped to what he thought was the man with a gun, to the back of the school, and what turned out to be a teacher, and not the suspect. In doing so, he drove right by the suspect, who was hunkered down behind a vehicle, where he began shooting at the school. They called her identified, I'll not say her name, but she was in room 112, called 911 at 12.03. The duration of the call was one minute and 23 seconds. She identified herself and whispered she's in room 112. At 12.10, she called back in room 12, advised there are multiple dead. None at that time. Why? Why? The the on-scene commander at the time believed that it had transitioned from an active shooter to a barricaded subject. The question simply is this. There was a 40-minute gap. And if the 911 operators were aware that, that children were alive in that classroom, why weren't officers notified of that? And if that's the case, why didn't they take action? That's the question. Hey, from the, for the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was the wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. 19 police officers were inside the school for more than 40 minutes as the gunmen holed up in a classroom with those terrified little children and those panicked, desperate kids kept calling 911 I'm pleading with them to send in the police. I honestly, I listened to this press conference today. I, I kept thinking that I was missing something or I had, I was screwing it up. I was left speechless. Now, let's just say that, let's just be clear here. The officer in charge on the scene who that Department of Public Safety official said was made this decision. It was not an active shooter situation. And the 19 cops inside the building didn't have to go in, despite the gunman locking himself in a classroom full of kids and a barrage of 911 calls. Uh, that individual wasn't present to defend himself today or herself. And I got to say, given the record of official pronouncements so far, there's no reason to take anything anyone from law enforcement in this situation says at face value, full stop. So that's what we have now. But it does seem confirmed. Even as we will likely learn more in the coming weeks, the worst possible set of facts appears to be the true one. That the police 
utterly failed with their guns, the good guys with the guns in the school utterly failed to protect those kids, that they set up a cordon outside the school and and yelled at and and threatened and prevented parents from rushing in, even it seems as the gunman was still inside. And in addition to the police response being an unfathomable failure, it is also just a profoundly upsetting demonstration of the bankruptcy of the arms race theory of violence prevention, something that just Wayne LaPierre pulled out of the ether. So he had something to say. This decades-long project outlined by LaPierre 10 years ago. Just give them everybody guns. And arm an increasingly militarized police force. More and more money, more and more weapons. Make sure they all have SWAT teams. They all need to have SWAT teams because you never know. So if one of the weapons ends up in the hands of a bad guy, we've got a huge paramilitary unit that's trained to go in there and stop them. It's all BS! This, they built up to this moment. And here it was. Here's the proving ground. And we just saw it fail in real time. And yet, even after that, in the wake of that, after that press conference today, in which that failure was enunciated at the NRA conference, after we learned about the failure of the good guys with guns, here's what happened. Ultimately, as we all know, what stops armed bad guys is armed good guys. As the age-old saying goes, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Have you ever heard that? No, you've never heard that. If those are the two categories, I'm curious, for, for Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, which category were the police in this estimation? Of course, it's not two categories of people. That's the whole point. Whatever Donald Trump and Ted Cruz say, the entire NRA worldview collapsed in on itself in a pool of blood in that elementary school in Uvalde, Texas on Tuesday. And in the end, the sheer brutal bankruptcy of what these cretins have been proposing, Cruz and Trump and Greg Abbott, Wayne Lapierre, everyone celebrating guns and gun culture in Houston today, it has been laid bare. I'd done it. I'd gone from gun idiot to idiot with a gun. Qualified to conceal a deadly weapon in most of the country. Probably in your home state. With all of eight hours of training, I was ready to handle every crisis situation. You're not ready to handle every crisis situation. Who the f*** are you? I'm Pete Blair. I'm the director of the ALERT program. ALERT! or the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Program, has trained over 80,000 cops to respond to active shooter events. So why was this dude trying to jam up on my gun nuts? Because you've had one day of training. I see how it is. You want to take away our guns. I wouldn't want to take away anybody's gun. Good. uh, But I would want to help train them. Okay. I'll tell you, 30 states, the NRA, and Uncle Sam all think that I'm good to go when it comes to guns. How many rounds did you shoot? Is rounds bullets? Yes. A ton. 10, 20, 50? Yeah, and I shot him at the paper. I would recommend more training. Come at me, bro. 
This is your weapon. Again, I'm handing it to you as a hot weapon. Okay. Alert agreed to test my Eastwood-like reflexes in the following simulation. There's an active shooter in the building. With my Glock 17 modified to shoot paintball-like bullets, I'm the good guy with a gun who's gonna take him down. Okay, so you need to be ready. It could happen in any second. From this point on, just need to be ready. Stop! Stop! Okay, that was a test run. I wasn't even ready. Probably not gonna be ready for it in real life. But I get a do-over. Let's do it over again. So I kneeled down and prepared to do battle. And got shot again. And again. And again. Why was that so hard? That was nothing like Call of Duty. I told you it's not that simple. Yeah, but the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That's science. Uh, that's inaccurate. About one out of every five active shooter events gets stopped by a potential victim at the scene, and most of those victims are unarmed. Yeah, where'd you get those stats from? Some liberal think tank, like Hillary Pack? No, it's from the uh, FBI report that came out last year, a study of active shooter incidents from 2000 to 2013. Obama's FBI? It's the FBI. Yeah. You believe that liberal claptrap? I'm one of the co-authors of the report. I took a closer look at his report, and it pretty much proved my good guy theory. There are some cases where we have good guys with guns who are able to stop the shooter. Most cases? Very few cases. Half the cases? Not half. A quarter of the cases? Not a quarter of the cases. What's the percent? It's about 3%. 3%? But these guys said the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. We must not have enough guns. 97% more people had guns 100% of the time. There'd be 0% crime. I'm not sure that's how math works. Pete, it's simple. Gun goes bang, bad guy falls down, I get to have sex with Cher. What more do I need to learn? If you're going to have a gun, we recommend as much training as you can get. Fine. I'll train some more. Alert uses this abandoned elementary school to teach law enforcement to respond to active shooter events. Their on-site trainers have over 40 years of combined experience in military and law enforcement. Training with these guys, I'd finally get enough training. There's never enough training. You're never good enough. It's not so much a, a destination. After yet another four and a half more hours of training, it was time to show them how it's done. The scenario is as follows. I hear shots fired at an elementary school. Police are on the way, but with innocent civilians inside, I have to draw my concealed handgun and respond. There's the bad guy. Mission accomplished. Bad, I'm bad. Sorry. Okay, so that wasn't the bad guy. So where are the bad there they are. There they are. I'm being shot. Oh, thank God. The authorities are here. I just hope they know I'm a good guy. I had failed. Do you guys need help? I'm a good guy. I was shot over 20 times by two different bad guys with guns. And then the police mistook me for a bad guy and shot me a bunch too. Also, I may have shot an unarmed teen twice in the chest. It was tough. Being a good guy with a gun was starting to feel way more complicated than movies and video games and politicians make it seem. It's a complex situation, and you don't want to just give people guns and say you assume they know what they're going to do. It requires a lot of training. Who's got time for that much training? People who are going to dedicate their lives to protecting others. That's it. Being a good guy with a gun just takes a lifetime commitment to training. All we have to do is figure out who the good guys are, get millions of them to volunteer for 300 hours of training a year, costing billions of dollars, then make sure they're in the right place at the right time, guns at the ready, 
and place this civilian army in our 4,700 colleges, 5,700 hospitals, 48,000 malls, hundreds of thousands of churches. You know, America. Just do that. What you were saying earlier about the, like, the thought process of the people who wrote the, the Constitution and the Second Amendment. Right. I, I would love for you to be, I'll be one of those guys with a coffee mug and sign saying, prove me wrong. Uh, just, you're going to have to explain it to me. I just, I don't see how, given that these people just overthrew a government that was oppressive, they had to use their guns in order to do that. Why they would not be thinking when they wrote in the Second Amendment that, hey, we're going to need to use the same weapons that the government might have if we ever need to do this again. And they are of the understanding that um, a government can become so oppressive in order to do that. Sure. It's a good and serious question, Josh. The reason they weren't thinking like that and they weren't talking like that, and uh, I, I encourage you to go back and read you know, Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. He took copious notes. And in particular, the notes on the, uh, on the, the Virginia ratifying convention, which, which was the convention where they ratified the, the, uh, they were debating whether or not to adopt the Constitution. Uh, the, the Constitution was written in the summer of 1787. The Virginia ratifying convention was summer of seven, uh, 1788. And in, in the, in the fall of 1789 is when the uh, Constitution was adopted and we became a country. And then two years later, or three years later, 1791, is when we got the Bill of Rights, which included the Second Amendment. But the Second Amendment was passed around, uh, the, the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, were passed around with the Constitution in 1788. And it became a huge topic of discussion at the Virginia Ratifying Convention uh, because of the objections of, of uh, Patrick Henry. So, number one, in answer to your question, just a straight-up answer to your question, the reason why they didn't think that they would ever have to have guns to overthrow the government of the United States is because it was a completely different type of government. They were creating a democracy. They had overthrown a kingdom. Kingdoms are com completely, consequentially, totally different kinds of governments. Democracies, they, these guys were true believers. They believed that a democracy would, would survive. They believed that a democracy would produce the very best outcome and that a democracy would have to defend itself. And in fact, you know, there were, there were a couple of, rebe of rebellions, you know, Shays' rebellion is probably the most famous, um, that where George Washington and his buddies put down the rebellions. So they definitely weren't thinking about, gee, we want a little rebellion. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's comments when he was in Paris about the French Revolution, uh, need, you know, uh, that uh, periodically the tree of liberty needs to be watered with the blood of patriots. He was speaking of the French Revolution in support of the French Revolution. Those comments notwithstanding, nobody among the founding generation was saying, someday in the future, this government that we're creating, we, the people, are going to have to destroy. Just didn't happen. So wasn't you honestly even, wasn't even part of the conversation. You honestly believe that. No, this is a matter of belief. I, I wrote a book about this, Josh, and I and all the footnotes and all the references are in it. It's called The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. I spent a year researching it, and I'm telling you, this isn't my belief. This is the actual history. So, number one, there were two there were two issues at debate with regard to the Second Amendment. The first was that Jefferson and his contingent, what ultimately became the Democratic Republican Party, today's Democratic Party, back then uh they were 
you know, this was, there were no political parties at the time that this was written. The Federalist was the first uh, party to emerge, and that was at the tail end of the George Washington administration. So back then, the big fear when the Constitution was being written was not that our government would become oppressive. The big fear was, generally speaking, that the military within our government could overthrow the government. They had seen governments in Europe that had been quasi or semi-democratic, where the power of the king had been reduced, the power of the legislature had been increased. Uh, Holland was probably, or you know, the Netherlands, one of the better examples of that. It wasn't one of the ones that suffered a, an internal military coup. But they had seen this over and over through a thousand years of history, that when governments got overthrown, they were almost never overthrown by the people. They were almost always overthrown by the military. And so the argument that Jefferson put forward, and he was out, so outspoken about this, is at least a dozen letters he wrote about this, including to the convention and including to, I mean, published in newspapers and everything, was that we should not have a standing army during a time of peace because a standing army is the mother of all mischief. It was his phrase that a standing army is, is, has the potential to rise up and overthrow the country, a military coup, like what happened in Egypt just a couple of years ago. And so his solution to that, and there was this huge debate about how do we prevent a standing army from being a threat to, to, to a nation. And his solution was, don't have a standing army during times of peace. Only have every state have a militia, the equivalent of what we would today call the National Guard. And during a time of national emergency, the federal government, the uh, out of White House, the, you know, out of the the, the the president, can call up those state militias, and that's in the Constitution. It's in Article Eight of the Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution. And so Jefferson argued we should have no standing army. We should have a standing navy. And in fact, again, Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution specifically says we can have a navy. But in the and this is this is the amazing thing, Josh. There's only one place in the entire Constitution where the ability of Congress to, to, uh, to raise money and spend money is time limited. Only one place in the whole Constitution. And it's in Article 1, Section 8, and it says that no appropriation, I'm doing this from memory, but this is pretty close, no appropriation for funding the Army shall last more than two years. It's right there in the Constitution, and it's still the law today. Congress can appropriate all the money they want for the Pentagon, but it cannot extend for more than a two-year period. At the end, so in other words, it forced Congress every two years to decide, do we want to have a military, or do we want to have all these state militias that the president could call up? And that was the conclusion that they came to. When Jefferson came into office, there were over 400,000 men in the U.S. Army. Actually, I think the number was like 370,000. It was in the neighborhood of 400,000 men in the, in the U.S. Army when Jefferson became president in 1801, in, in March of 1801. He dialed that back to around 6,000 people because he wanted to get rid of the standing army. So by the time he left office in 1809, in January of, or March of 1809, the, uh, our army was gone. We had a very strong navy at that point. But we had basically no army, which is why and how the British and the Canadians could just march in from, from Quebec and, and burn the White House down in the War of 1812. And so that whole debate about whether we should have a standing army or not, which was a hot, hot, hot debate from the 18, from the 1770s 
right up until 19, right up until the end of the Jefferson presidency, that debate ended with the War of 1812. Because after the War of 1812, in 1815, when that war was resolved, everybody agreed, we need to have a, a, a standing army. And, it, and we have had a standing army ever since. So that was one of the reasons why, that was the main reason, that was 90% of why the Second Amendment was written the way it was, why it was put in the Constitution the way it was, to prevent a standing army and provide a, a backup being the state militias. The second reason the Second Amendment was altered in that Virginia ratifying convention, James Madison was there, he is the father of the Constitution, he was shopping around this stuff, you know, with the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment. And Patrick Henry, who was the largest slaveholder in Virginia, gets up and gives this long speech in which he points out that there's over 300,000 black people in Virginia, and they're all enslaved. And if they ever rise up against the state, the, st the white people in Virginia are screwed. And the thing that could end the ability of Virginia to keep those black people in enslavement would be if the federal government called up their militia for just, just for the hell of it. If the president was an, an abolitionist and he said, I'm going to end slavery in Virginia, if they got an Abraham Lincoln in the White House, all he had to do is call up the Virginia militia because the Virginia militia was also the Virginia slave patrol. And so the original Second Amendment said, for the security of a free nation. And in deference to Patrick Henry, James Madison changed that language to, for the security of a free state. So that the individual states, there were four states at the time that had militias that were also simultaneously slave patrols. Georgia, South Carolina, um, uh, Virginia, and I believe the other one was Alabama. I could be wrong. It's in my book. And, that, and that's the history of the Second Amendment. None of it had to do with thinking, gee, maybe someday in the future we're going to need to kill politicians in America. Never even discussed. Josh, thanks for a great question. Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court from 1969 to 1986. Charlene Hunter Galt spoke to him last week. If I were writing the Bill of Rights now, there wouldn't be any such thing as the Second Amendment. Which says? That uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of the state, the people's rights to bear arms. This has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud. I repeat the word fraud on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. Now just look at those words. There are only three lines to that amendment. A well-regulated militia. If the militia, which was going to be the state army, was going to be well-regulated, why shouldn't 16 and 17 and 18 or any other age persons be regulated in the use of arms the way an automobile is regulated? I think this brings us in, into the heart of what I think this conversation is about is this sort of commercial advertisement, public affairs campaign uh, about guns. Again, we, we've talked up to the point where the gun industry is really in trouble at, at, at this point, where it's they're really not making a profit uh, at, at this point. So the industry, and tell me how this works, and, and uh, the industry then uh, comes up with a plan to try to create a market for their guns. 
Well, not exactly. Is that not right? Uh, they were, well, not entirely. They weren't colluding with each other. Yeah. Um, they were coming up with ideas spontaneously that led them down the same path. Um, and it was a path that was very familiar to most businesses in the turn of the century. The gun industry was, was certainly holding on. World War I was a terrible time for them. But um, we have to think about the major changes that were happening in the United States at the turn of the century and also globally. A lot of the imperialism that, that had been um, armed by, by these U.S. manufacturers had died down. A lot more countries were at peace. Um, and we were moving into a post-frontier society. Um, America was becoming much more urban. Uh, the economy was much more corporate. Uh, people were leading more sedentary lives. They weren't actually going out to shoot vermin or hunt um, for dinner. So in this context, how how are guns to remain relevant? And you know, really, tools go obsolete all the time. Um, there are other countries that have had frontiers, and once those frontiers close, they then it become gun cultures. So think of that as the dilemma that the gun industry is facing. And the major players at this time in the gun industry, which certainly included Winchester and Colt and, and Remington and Smith and Wesson, they're all confronting the same dilemma. And they're trying to figure out how do we transliterate guns into this new world? How are guns still relevant? And this is where we really get into their um, independent yet very similar and like-minded efforts to market guns in a new way. Talk to me how they how they did that marketing. What, what what kind of commercials did we start to see? Well, if guns were being advertised in the 1800s, you know, in farming journals, um, by the time we get to the 1900s, there's a real sea change going on. Um, the guns changing from something that was needed but not necessarily loved to something that was loved but not necessarily needed. Hmm. So the gun industry becomes very interested in a very self-conscious way in developing the emotional and the intangible and the symbolic values of the gun. And this is evident in a whole bunch of different places. Um, some of the most interesting advertisements from Winchester um, were these calendars where they would no longer advertise the gun in terms of how it worked, but they'd advertise in terms of how it made you feel. So they would um, illustrate a predicament scene where a man is scurrying off against a bear or an enemy um, and has to win this battle. So very adrenaline-fueled kind of advertisement. Um, Winchester and other companies began to employ people who they called missionaries, okay, to drum up enthusiasm for guns in advance of their sales force going out into the field and selling them. So this was just to, like, gin up excitement about the idea of the gun and really desire for the gun in a way that was much more emotional. Um, there text really shifted as well. Um, they started talking about, they kind of drew on the language of psychology to talk about a boy's subconscious interest in developing and having a gun, um, their natural instinct to have a gun, and language like this. So it's a very different landscape from the 1800s. They, they, were, they were individualizing gun for the, the lone individual. Could, could we even say for, for uh, the loner? For a loaner? Yeah, that, 
Yes, that's one of the paradoxes of the gun industry that really interests me because this was a, a firearm that was being mass produced, yet its mystique became very much about individualism. And Oliver Winchester had begun that, that messaging even in the 1880s. He imagined a customer as a single individual out there uh, needing protection. But um, the idea of the gun as your one last defense against chaos against danger. Um, even if it was no longer on the frontier, you know, Colt started advertising guns um, to be sold for protection on the roads if you were in your automobile or if you were alone in your home. And the industry just really began to feed in a much more self-conscious way on, on fear, you know, and on danger. And the idea that even if you're living, you know, in a city, in a townhome in a city, uh, you're still vulnerable, you know, in ways that, that the frontiersmen might have been vulnerable. So that was part of the packaging. Part of the packaging was to develop that um, almost like a modern gunslinger mystique. We've done a number of shows in the past on the history of the National Rifle Association, how it has changed, and the history of the reading of the Second Amendment of the uh, U.S. Constitution uh, as well. Um, it, do, when do we start to do, – do we see through this advertising advertisement campaign do, do we start to see this when do we start to see this connection to the second amendment and about being american right the second amendment is is really quite silent in any of the historical archives around the gun industry um that was certainly not a selling point um, it certainly, and it certainly wasn't the case that the Second Amendment, you know, patented, invented, produced, distributed, or marketed guns. That's really the legacy of the gun industry. Um, so today, the Second Amendment conversation absolutely dominates this gun discussion. Um, and I think it's working almost like a cloaking device to hide the gun industry from view. Because historically, um, the Second Amendment really wasn't the selling point. In my, in my reading, you can begin to see the first glimmers of a kind of political identity emerging around the Second Amendment, perhaps in the early 1930s, um, with one of the first attempts at, at federal firearms legislation. I mean, even at this point, the NRA wasn't a deeply combative organization. Um, they weren't certainly weren't paying uh, for lobbyists per se. Um, but you can read in some of the industry action and in the testimony around that legislation um, this sense of the Second Amendment as a player, as an issue um, that that needed to be brought to the the foreground. So, I, but before that point. It, it doesn't really factor heavily, certainly in the gun industry, um, and, and not even that heavily in the political culture. Obviously, this is a story that is much about guns, as much about business and, and capitalism. And when did the gun industry, when did this advertisement campaign start to, to pay off and start to see profits for the industry? Well, um, different companies certainly had profitability in the 1800s as well, and that's important to note. It's just that their profitability and their viability really came not from the domestic American market. It came from military contracts and from their business abroad and internationally. Um, so around the turn of the century, the industry really begins to kind of cultivate that, that domestic market. Um, 
such that if we take the model 1873, which is probably the most famous Winchester rifle, um, those sales were actually the highest, not in the 1800s, but in 1906 and 1912. Um, so ironically, you know, when we're in this, this post frontier urban world, their sales were doing quite well. And other historians have noted that certainly the marketing effort and the expansion of sales and this whole change in the gun industry's philosophy um, that you don't just um, meet demand, you don't just fulfill demand, but you create demand had something to do with this continued relevance and this continued profitability. Um, the gun industry was really like other industries. All industries were doing this. The idea of sales was really changing in the early 1900s, and the gun industry was right there with the others, getting on board with this idea of, uh, you know, how do you make people want your product? It made me think of fast food industry and, and, and these type of things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, in one of the uh, sales bulletins in the Winchester archive, um, the executives talk openly about, well, what can we learn from the liquor people, quote unquote, because they've really done a good job of educating young men to the uses of their product, you know, and maybe we need to start doing this. Um, they sought out women customers. They sought out um, ways to market guns more as a luxury. And in one bulletin, they they compare the gun to a Packard automobile or a diamond. So the gun isn't just a tool anymore. Now it's kind of acquiring this this luxury status. So we can kind of see how they're they're tweaking the gun's image and its mystique to keep it keep it relevant. Together We Rise, reads the motto on a wall of the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. The school serves about 600 students in the second through fourth grades. Over 90% are Latinx. 19 children between the ages of 9 and 11 and two of their teachers were murdered there Tuesday by an 18-year-old gunman armed with a semi-automatic AR-15 rifle. The shooter, Salvador Ramos, was killed at the school by a U.S. Border Patrol agent. At a news conference Wednesday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican who consistently rejects gun control, blamed the shortage of mental health services for the atrocity. Manny Oliver, whose son Joaquin was killed in the Parkland, Florida school massacre in 2018, said on the Democracy Now! NewsHour, This is not about uh, mental health. That happens all around the planet. This is about guns and easy access to guns. In the middle of Governor Abbott's briefing, Beto O'Rourke, who's running against Abbott in the upcoming gubernatorial election, interrupted. Sit down Others on the stage cursed at O'Rourke, demanding he leave. As police closed in, O'Rourke exited. His accusations were echoed in a tweet by Amanda Gordon, the youngest presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. She wrote, It takes a monster to kill children, but to watch monsters kill children again and again and do nothing isn't just insanity, it's inhumanity, she said. Many U.S. politicians parrot the line that this is the greatest nation on earth. American exceptionalism is ingrained in our culture. 
We have the most number of weapons with an estimated 400 million guns in circulation. That's more guns than people in the United States and almost half the civilian-owned guns on the planet. We're without question number one when it comes to mass shootings. The Gun Violence Archive has counted 213 so far this year alone and more than 3,000 since 2014. A shocking number of U.S. mass shootings take place in schools. According to the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, there have been 2,054 school shootings in the United States since 1970, with 681 deaths. Canada has had a total of eight school shootings in about the same time frame from 1975, with a total of 31 victims killed. Mexico has had 17 school shootings since 2004, with 15 victims killed. In Australia in 1996, a young man with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle massacred 35 people in the tourist town of Port Arthur, Tasmania. Australia is a country of gun lovers, but reaction to the shooting was swift, with a popular national mandatory gun buyback for semi-automatic guns, some 643,000 guns were collected and destroyed. Since then, Australia's experienced just one mass shooting of the type that occurs almost daily in the United States. Similar policies were established in other wealthy, industrialized nations in the wake of mass shootings in Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and Norway. When access to guns is restricted and gun ownership is more difficult, gun violence dramatically drops. There's consensus on tightening gun laws here in the United States. Preventing those suffering from mental illness from owning or accessing guns has between 85 and 90 percent bipartisan support, according to the Pew Research Center. Banning clips that hold more than 10 bullets has 64 percent bipartisan support. A federal database tracking every gun sale enjoys 66 percent support. Why don't elected officials heed the electorate? One clear reason is the decades of lobbying by the National Rifle Association. The American gun lobby, which is supported by American gun manufacturers, um, is alive and well. That's Robin Lloyd, managing director of Giffords, the organization dedicated to preventing gun violence led by former Congress member Gabby Giffords, who was shot in the head in a mass shooting in Tucson. The National Rifle Association, the NRA, has been weakened due to um, self-inflicted wounds of greed and mismanagement of funds. But other organizations like the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the lobbying arm for um, the gun industry and gun retailers, um, is alive and well. And actually, the National Shooting Sports Foundation spends more on lobbying um, against um, gun violence prevention measures here in Washington than the NRA does. So they're the true face of the American uh, corporate gun lobby. Nicole Golden, executive director of Texas Gun Sense, organizes for common sense gun control in the Lone Star State. I've been involved in gun violence prevention in Texas for almost a decade. I have sat through brutal hearings at the state legislature. I have heard unbelievable arguments to our very sensible um, uh, ask for common sense gun laws, laws that most Texans support laws that law enforcement supports, laws that are working to prevent gun violence in other states. 
Um, but we have a we have a political climate here that makes it such that it's been, um, you know, our 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 work has basically been, um, you know, shut down. Despite the power of the gun lobby, Nicole Golden is not without hope. She was speaking on the Democracy Now! News Hour. We're here for the long haul. Uh, we're not going anywhere. And I'm certain that's, that at some point when the political will is there, we will have built the infrastructure to see real change here. Until then, we'll keep chipping away, working in our communities to pass um, a meaningful change and continuing with building uh, this extremely strong movement. As the children of Robb Elementary School proclaim, together we rise. We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, explaining the simple things we need to do to reduce gun violence and why the Second Amendment isn't an impediment. Chris Hayes, on All In, laid out the childish NRA arguments and how easily they're proven wrong by reality. The Daily Show looked at the FBI stats on the effectiveness of good guys with guns. Tom Hartman explained why the origins of the Second Amendment have nothing to do with defending against a tyrannical government. The PBS NewsHour spoke with Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger in 1991 about the Second Amendment. Letters and Politics looked at the marketing campaign by gun makers that intentionally invented gun culture, trademark, out of whole cloth, and Amy Goodman, on Breaking the Sound Barrier, laid out the evidence of the effectiveness of gun control measures. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Citations Needed going over the ever-evolving pro-gun talking points. Republicans obviously have no interest in changing any gun laws and curbing anything about gun manufacturers uh, doing anything about this. And so they resort to let's come up with some things that we can say to hand ring and 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 obviously blame uh, liberals, blame Democrats, blame progressives and certainly the far left for all of this. It, of course, has nothing to do with the right wing refusal to do anything about this. It is all about what? Making sure people are safe during a pandemic or maybe uh, I'm sure mask mandates probably drove mass shooters to this point, right? And Letters and Politics went through the history of gun control laws and the origins of the NRA. The very first gun law passed in America was enacted in 1619. It was passed by the Jamestown Colony, and they met in the summer of 1619 and formulated about 35 laws to you know, govern the colony. One of those laws was a law that said that um, anybody selling or giving guns to Indians, to Native Americans, would be violating uh, the law and would be subject to a death penalty if they did so. And now... Just a quick plug for our upcoming bonus episode. We did a deep dive into the meaning of culture with a focus on capitalism culture, but uh, many of the lessons learned apply to gun culture as well. I think I may have actually broken into some real uh, bit of insight as to the fundamental blockage for the diehard gun lovers when it comes to not being able to see any form of gun safety measures as legitimate or even worth discussing. And it's not because they are simply blinded by their love of guns or that they're sociopaths. It's uh, more complicated than that. 
And it takes a bit of explaining, so you'll want to go check out that full members episode to hear it. And look, if you think it's a bit crass to have a membership tease here at the end of an episode on gun death, I actually completely agree with that. And that concept is also explained in the capitalism culture portion of the bonus show. But as much as I may understand it, we are stuck in the same system you are, and it is membership dollars that help make this show possible because... As much as I wish I did, I don't live in a moneyless mutual aid community, also explained in the bonus show. The one saving grace, though, is that we do offer financial hardship memberships for those who can't afford the cost. We need members, and so we perpetuate the myth of scarcity, just like everyone else, also explained in the bonus show. But we don't actually prevent you from accessing additional information just for lack of funds. So if you can afford it, sign up at bestoftheleft.com slash support. And if you can't, just drop me a line to j at bestoftheleft.com and we will get you set up. No questions asked. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to the aforementioned j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show, particularly Dion this week, who did all the heavy lifting on, on this week's two horrifying episodes. So we really appreciate his work, his, his self-sacrifice for having gotten through that. Thanks also to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Possibly for the last time, Scott, as we say goodbye to Scott, we thank him for all of the work that he has been doing to help put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. And don't forget that you can keep the conversation going by joining our Best of the Left Discord community, where we discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, videos, books, everything you can think of. So join up with us there. Links in the show notes for details on how to do that. And, of course, remember that I am perpetually asking for your suggestions, things that you think I should be aware of, that we should check out, that we should read, listen to, consider, and it just so happens one came in five minutes ago, and it was a recommendation on an episode talking about fighting gun culture and fascism, and that will, of course, be shared in the Discord community for further discussion there. So keep those suggestions coming in, and hope to chat with you on Discord. And with that, I have been coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.